0: to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Good morning everyone. We're week 2 into our new series called By His Name, and this directly pivots off our series on Revelation. And as we discussed last week, where revelation helps us understand our present in light of the future. History books like Chronicles that we're going through help us understand our present in light of the past. That we serve a God who works throughout all of history and no part of history stands in isolation. Chronicles, the name, comes from the Greek word chronos, which is where we get chronology. That's our understanding of time. And in our worldview, we think of time in regards to sort of sequences, one thing after the next. But the Greeks also have another word for time. You may have heard this before called kairos. And kairos time is when God's direct purposes intersect with a particular moment in time. And the heartbeat of last week's message was that we are in a kairos time. There is something significant and potent happening in this day and place that the Lord is getting his church's attention on because he wants to lead the way. I ended last week with some stories in our history, in our lifetime of when God has intersected and he's heard the cries of his people. They have sought him and he has responded and he's turned what feel like untenable situations around. This is the God we live And although we, God we believe in, sorry, and although we live in a time in history where belief isn't really actualized, he's getting us to believe him again, that this God that we know of wants to move and he wants to renew his name and his deeds and his fame in our time. So today I wanted to kick the second one off, talking to you about Australia. I'm not sure what you know about Australian history. We will all know bits and pieces. We're pretty young. I often like to say we're in nappies compared to the history the world, but I have found out some things recently that have really stuck with me, that I want to lead today's message on, and it has to do with how Australia was found. It's relatively common knowledge that James um, Cook, 1788, it wasn't the first finding, there are a number of other nav- navigators that are up for grabs in who it was that first found the land of Australia. And one of the key candidates is a Portuguese navigator called Pedro Fernandes de Curos. Pedro Fernandes de Curos was a young, passionate believer in Jesus. And he had heard the rumors, as had Spain, where he came from, that there was a land down in the south They called it Terra Australis. And the theory was, as if there, if there is a North Pole that is surrounded by a landmass, then there is also a South Pole surrounded by a landmass, let's go find land. Now obviously this land was already ha- inhabited by our Indigenous Australians for thousands of years prior to this but this was the rest of the world discovering that this land existed and so Pedro Fernandez de Kuros sets sail and he comes across for the first time some southern lands. He ends up landing first and foremost on New Hebrides which is Vanuatu and he actually thought that was what he thought later was Australia but it was the islands just preceding Australia. And he was so invigorated by this find that he instantly dedicates this land to God. And this is the actual mandate. This is his declaration in discovering this landmass. It's really significant that we heed this. This is what he says. Let the heavens and the earth with all their creatures and all those present, witness that I, Captain Pedros Fernandez de Curos in the name of Jesus Christ, hoist this emblem of the holy cross on which his person was crucified and whereon he gave his life for the ransom and remedy of all the human race. On this day of Pentecost, the 14th of May, 1606, I take possession of all this part of the South. As far as the pole in the name of Jesus, which from now on shall be called the southern land of the Holy Spirit. As we talked about last week, names are deeply significant. They signify inheritance, they signify favour, they signify destiny. And what we have here is a first white man discovering a landmass and instantly dedicating it to God himself. This is not to be looked past. It's easy for us to think that we're shaped by this secular worldview that has limited our imaginations and our understanding of life and who God is and who we are because of who he is. But our history tells us that right from the beginning, this was a land claimed for the glory of God. It's easy to think that God hasn't moved in Australia before. Mark has given us hints in past sermons and series. But Australia has had mass turnouts where the Holy Spirit has moved powerfully. One of those times is in 1885. It's called the 1885 revival. It is hardly documented on. But when the Holy Spirit hit Australia, over two-thirds of white Australia came to know Jesus, they don't know the Indigenous population that was impacted by that. But this was huge turnout of the Spirit of God hitting his people. There are over 100,000 Bible study and prayer groups formed all around the nation crying out to God. And so from the, the minute the land is discovered to the minute the Holy Spirit has activated that promise on the land, we are on a landmass that has been deeply fermented and dedicated to the glory and the holiness of God. That 1885 revival went for 30 years. It was interrupted by World War I. But this was a time where God's destiny was activated on the land and it is part of our story, it is part of our history, But it doesn't end there. You may have heard of the Azusa Street Revival. If you hadn't, it happened in 1906, kind of kick-started off the Welsh Revival. It happened in 1904. But the Azusa Street Revival is known as one of, if not the biggest outpourings of the Holy Spirit of God, where 600 million people were impacted by this revival. When the Holy Spirit came to Azusa Street in LA, and it was led by an African-American man who only had one eye. I love his story. And through him, God brought the spirit across the earth. It is thought that between 1.6 and 2 billion people have been impacted of the ricochet of what became the Azusa Street Revival. This was a mass outpouring in just over 100 years ago on the earth. But at the end of that revival in 1909, William Seymour himself, says this is just a foretaste. This is just the beginning. There is going to be a greater outpouring in 100 years from now. It's called the 100-year prophecy. But what is unknown is the second part to what he says. And the second part, African-American man, says that this greater revival will begin in Australia and New Zealand and it will go from there to the nations. That same day, his colleague, Charles Parham, is on the opposite side of the nation. Seymour's in L.A. Parham is in Washington, D.C. Unknowingly, they have the same word at the same time on the same day. And Charles Parham is also preaching and he's interrupted in his preaching. And he says a greater outpouring is going to happen yet. And it will come out of the great south land of the Holy Spirit. Our Bible says when there is two or three witnesses that can give testimony, it is confirmed. But it didn't stop there. In 1913, another American evangelist, Maria Woodworth Etta, repeated this same prophecy again at her opening message in a series of meetings she wanted to run for one week, but ended up running for six months, where the Holy Spirit again came on people. And her beginning message started by saying there's going to be a great outpouring of the Spirit in 100 years' time and it will begin in the great south land of the Holy Spirit. These are Americans. Americans don't usually speak about other nations. Full respect. We love America. But when you look at De Curios' dedication of the land in which we live, and he included Indonesia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and Australia, this whole South Land, and you match it with these words from well-known evangelists, there is something in this time and place that we need to heed. Smith Wigglesworth, in 1922, famous healer, was preaching in New Zealand, and he suddenly stops. And this is the recollection of someone who was in the meeting. He says, suddenly Smith stops preaching and he points at the pastor and he takes hold of him by the shoulders. And he starts prophesying that Australia and New Zealand have been chosen by God for a great move of the Holy Spirit. And this move of God will be the greatest move of God ever known in mankind's history. It will start with a great revival in Australia and it will spread throughout the whole world and usher in the second coming of Jesus. These are really bold words. And I'm not sure that if we weren't in crisis that we're in globally right now, we would dare believe that they were here. But when we couple to Curios' dedication of this land with these words from a 100 years ago, and the crisis that we're at now in, I want to propose to you that God does want to pour out his spirit and he wants you to be a part of it and it's time to get ready. And so with that, I'm going to pray and I ask Holy Spirit that you would stir amongst us a bigger sense of your story, we don't just live in 2020 and the years preceding this and the years post that, but we are part of a much bigger story of your plan and your heart for the nations, and that you have chosen us in this time and place to give witness to this era. And so as we unpack your words this morning, I ask and I pray that my words would be your words, that, Holy Spirit, you would meet with people in their lounge rooms, that you would meet with them in their hearts, that you would stir what it is you're wanting to stir, We bind unbelief and we bind the strongholds that are on this land that would seek to rob what you're wanting to do at this hour. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Amen. I want to bring us back to 2 Chronicles that we looked at last week. And if you haven't seen that message, this message doesn't stand in isolation. Please go back, see the first week. It goes through the context of the Old Testament promise that Jesus was giving, God, Jesus, was giving to Solomon when he dedicated the temple, which was to house the very presence of God on earth. And this is what he says in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 to 14. And this week I want to point out to you that, yep, it's two verses, but it's one sentence. the promise he gives at the end doesn't stand in isolation. He says, When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send an epidemic among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then... I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. When, if, then. And in the second part of this sentence, we have a progression of adjectives, of actions that God wants his people to do before he decides to turn up. And it's this progression of actions uh, we want to go through in the, n- in the next part of this series. And today, the first adjective he asks of his people, and it's a corporate word, not an individual word, is to humble ourselves. It's easy to just glibly look past this and just go to the rest. But today, for the rest of this sermon, I want to focus on this concept of humility and what it means to humble ourselves. What is it and why is it so important to God? And why is it key to him activating the rest of his plans on the earth? When you look up definitions of humility, I don't really respond. Uh, The dictionary dictionary says having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's importance. Um, I think that must be true, but it doesn't really impact me. Um, the second dictionary definition is freedom from pride or arrogance. Sounds right, but I don't feel very compelled. John Dixon, who wrote a book called Humilitas, researching the history of humility, defines it as holding power loosely for the sake of others. It's not limiting identity or being passive. It's having a weight but holding it loosely. But I want to use the definition by Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was um, a 19th century missionary. He was South African. He wrote a book called Humility, the Beauty of Holiness, and you can download that for free on the net, and I highly recommend you do. And He defines humility as the state of mind and heart that allows God to be God. It is simply acknowledging the truth of one's position as creature, and yielding to God, his place. This one packs a punch. And it's this one I want to unpack for us. And I want to give you three things that humility does and def- to, that defines what humility is. And that's the teaching component. And then I just want to go into three things that prophetically I feel that the Spirit's doing live at the moment uh, amongst his church. So unpacking humility more, humility, number one, allows God to be precisely who he is. It allows God to be God. We know the story, Genesis 1 and particularly Genesis 3, that somehow we bought the lie that we are in control. And a snake who had fallen, a devil who had fallen because of pride, liked to seep and embed his poison into the human race. And it is like our DNA is infused with this concept of identity and charge that we are in control. And we've, he's allowed us to live under that illusion, but no more. And the reason I want to say no more is because the World Health Chief himself said that all it's taken is a microscopic virus to turn up to humble us. She goes, it doesn't matter how smart we are, it doesn't matter how industrialised we are, it doesn't matter how good our tech is, it doesn't matter how much money we are, an unseen, microscopic virus has showed the world that we are not in charge. He goes on to say that nature has intervened to show us our place. The extent of our collective helplessness against this virus questions our boastful assumption about the infinity of human capacity. And right now, in this Kairos moment, the whole entire world is going through a humbling. We are going through a global humbling. We are going through a national humbling across nations. We are going through regional humbling here in Melbourne, big time. We're going through humbling in our homes. We're going through humbling as individuals. And the church herself is being humbled. We're thoughts, programs, constructs. We thought we could hold and host ourselves, We can't do anything. It is beyond our charge. Second one, the, the second thing that humility does is that it restores our identity. Humility was our created state. God being the creator, us the creature. But what pride did, What the devil did when he seduced us with a temptation to be like God is we decided we're the creators, that we can decide what, when and how things happen. Control took root. And I'm not talking here about a humility that is the opposite of pride. Anything that is not our true state, that isn't humility, is in a spectrum of either shame, humility or pride. And to have pride or to be masked and covered in shame is two opposite ends of the same problem. And that is not knowing who we are. That is not knowing whose we are. And that that is we are children of a father where he is God. We are his children because of that we are marked with his name. We are given an inheritance. We are given a favour. We are given an access. Humility restores our identity. What shame and pride do, the best way I can explain it, is with this guy. I'm not sure how you're going with it. I don't like it personally. I know that health professionals out there are like, come on, please, because you guys have to wear heaps of stuff. Even before COVID, you had to wear heaps of stuff. Full, complete respect to you. But what I'm struggling about with this is not only is it uncomfortable and not only does it take my makeup off, I can't see you. When you're wearing a mask. I'm lucky to see your eyes but I can't see who you are and when I'm wearing my mask I feel separate from the world. I'm present but I'm not present. I can't breathe the air as I walk. I feel clouded and I feel covered and this is what A.W. Tozer calls the self-life. And I want to use this as a metaphor of the self-life, whether you're on the pride end or the shame end, and it means we're not fully present, we can't be fully ourselves and we can't fully see each other. Tozer says that this is a veil that is that is marked with a self-life and the self-life is made of a veil that is shaped of all these threads of self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, self-rejection, and a host of others like them. But it's not who we are. Who we are, the children of the living God, what humility does is it brings us back to our true identity. Paul later on says in Corinthians that we, like people with unveiled faces, get to reflect with ever-increasing glory the love and the presence of God. That is his heart for us. And so humbling enables us to activate the very identity, the very glory of God that he seeks to fill us up with. And so it's easy to think that as we do this series, we can go gung-ho, we're going to fast, we're going to do this, and we're going to activate this whole series of initiatives. Truth be told, we're still seeing God on exactly what that's going to look like. We can also think that we're going to be the heroes and we're going to make this happen and we're going to be the people in 2020 that humble ourselves and seek his face. But this whole concept of humility is that God is not looking for heroes. He's looking for children. And the more his church is able to activate themselves and enter the identity of being his children, the more he can release his presence on the earth. And finally, humility is our salvation. We want you to think about that one. There's a double entendre in there. Jesus epitomised humility and his humility ushered in our salvation. He didn't use humility as a tool for another goal. He was humble. He is humble. His path is humble. His way is humble. The road he gets us to walk is humble. And that humility he brought us saves us. And us entering that path of humility is our salvation. He can't stand pride. It's one of the big things he detests. You see that throughout all the scriptures. And that is why it's through humility that we access his glory. These passages from John are just a smattering that epitomise this humble God, this Jesus who never had a self-life. You do not see a self-life written through anything he says or anything he does. It is all about an emptying of himself so that the glory of the Father could fill him and do the work and bring presence and power on the earth. Andrew Murray talks about this and he says, Jesus came to bring humility back to earth. In heaven he humbled himself to become a man. And the humility we see in him possessed him in heaven and he brought it here. On earth he humbled himself and became obedient to death, to quote Paul. And now the salvation he imparts is nothing less than a communication of his own life and death, his own disposition and spirit, his own humility. Jesus Christ took the place and fulfilled the destiny of humanity as a creature by his life and perfect humility. His humility is our salvation, and his salvation is our humility. This is a Jesus who does it for us. We can't activate it ourselves. He is it for us. And he gets us to walk with him as he then walks that path of humility on the earth. Him in charge, us following behind. He says, in John, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, but come follow me. I don't know if you've seen the series The Chosen. I am going to do a plug here. The Chosen is a app that you can download and you get to watch episode after episode of the life of Jesus. Good news is it's not a Swedish Jesus, it's a Jewish Jesus that is average looking and they've taken scholars and theologians and the biblical text and then they've written a narrative in between the lines to give us a fresh encounter and taste of who Jesus was. And I don't know that there's an episode where I didn't either tear up or end up fully crying. As we encounter this Jesus is who is so desperately kind. He doesn't have a one-hit wonder. He He ministers and meets each person where they're at. He watches them over time. He gets to know them. And in his kindness and in his humility, he offers them life. And he offers them in life by showing them that they are seen that he can see who they really are and he can see what's happened to them. And you get to realise that our Jesus and sin and all of that, yep, it's real, it is real, but it is not sin that is going to humble you the most. It's his grace that humbles us the most. And I want to posit that in this time, as he's preparing his church, as he's preparing us, he has encounters with his grace, tailor-made for you. And he's just positioning us to receive and to pay attention. And so as we unpack what humility is, we see a God who wants to be God. We see that he is restoring our true identity, which will be the identity we have in the fullness of time also, as creature, as child. And it's humility that ushers in and brings our salvation. And with that, I just want to share, I guess, three things that I felt the Holy Spirit depositing me as I really did seek him to what he wanted to share. And the first, the first one is, and these are your activating things, is that he is asking of his church at the moment to push into this humbling season. That this is a humbling season. Not to fight it but to grasp it for what it is. So there are people out there that are fighting this and resisting this and thinking there is something wrong in them or something wrong with the circumstances, but this is actually a divine reset that the King of Kings is setting for you individually but for his church corporately. Don't fight it, don't resist it, accept it as the season he has commissioned. There are things that he's wanting to purge and purify, And it can feel like discipline and it can feel like it's really hurting, but he disciplines those he loves. And it's actually a divine act of grace to shape and prepare you for what comes next. You don't want to miss this. So don't fight it, accept it. And this is where he's asking us to push into surrender, to push into prayer, to push into faith and to practice. And that's why we're going to give you some tools at the end of this that Daniel's going to um, build upon from last week so that we can actually activate this and embrace this season for what it is. Um, The second thing that I felt him share and want to deposit with you is to accept this season with a posture of gratitude. He knows and he wants you to know that it's humility that actually ushers in all of his blessings. And he has got so many blessings for you as An individual but for his church corporately and so there's a danger that we're either going to resist it or we're going to glibly ignore it or we're just going to be saturated with the chaos of the time there's a much bigger story that is going on here and that within this time there are things that may be happening to you that are reminding you of your need for him and reminding you of your need to humble yourself and i can assure you from past experience It's much better humbling yourself than having God humble you. And so we're in this pocket of time where he's reminding you of your need for him and reminding you of your need for humility and circumstances and worries and concerns are designed to help you get there. So see them as your tool, not as your resistance, as your gift, not as the thing that is fighting against you. And ultimately, that this is an opportunity to prove to you that not in head knowledge, but in heart knowledge, yada knowledge, that Jesus is all, that he is the prize, not just the answer. And a tip for free, and I say this with nothing but grace, as someone who has walked and is walking this out, that the part of you that is struggling, is actually the very pride that he's going after. The third thing and encouragement on top of this that I felt him say is not just push into the humbling season, not just accept it with gratitude, but to expect and to expect the presence and the power of Jesus to fill that place. That if self is the veil that gets in the way, When we deny ourselves and our expectations and our thoughts of what this is going to look like and and how, we create space for something to come instead. And he wants to exchange yourself for his glory. He wants to exchange your false identity and false expectations of what your life should look like, where a world has, doesn't believe he exists, that he's dead, and the church has gone, no, he exists, but for the sake of me, he's twisting that around and he's going, give me yourself, and I will give you me. Expect his presence and the power of Jesus to come, and it may happen like an Azusa street, my sentiment is that at this time and place, it's going to well up within the centre parts of your soul. There's going a gentle welling up. And I felt him say that humility is the path to the higher life. Go down, go lower down. And as I said to my disciples who wanted to be great, humble yourselves and become servants. Be nothing so that I may be all. And just as water seeks to fill the lowest place, So I seek to fill you from the depths of your innermost man. And that as you seek me over time, that will grow and grow and it will be filled to the brim. But I'm after the depths. I'm after the place where deep calls to deep. I have to know that I can trust you with my presence for what is to come after. I'm going deeper than what you may think is fair but it's the way of my kingdom. And this is where the gold is found, that I am emptying you so that I can fill you. Church, will you empty yourselves and prepare for my presence? I long to be with you and I stand at the door and knock. So we are living in one of the most incredible moments and times in history. Don't miss it. See the season. Know the time that we're in. Embrace what he is doing in you. Push into it. Accept it with gratitude. And expect the power and presence of Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we just pause to invite, your minister in presence to speak. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you know and you see all things. Thank you that you believe in each person so much that you have a tailor-made way to undo the shame and to dethrone the pride, to dissolve the idols because you so desperately want to take the place. Thank you that it's you who runs after us. And I ask that your spirit would do that melting, softening work to dismantle our pride, to put us on our knees and to purely posture ourselves as servants. That for what is to come, competition can't get in the way, gossip cannot get in the way, Pride cannot get in the way. Blind for position and possessions cannot get in the way, Jesus. We just want.